And finally, they have a pulpit that's my size. <laughs> Down here where I live. The book of Acts, chapter 18. The last time that we were together looking at the book of Acts, we looked at the city of Corinth and uh, the background of the city of Corinth and Paul's ministry there briefly explained in Acts chapter 18. There are a couple of things that, one thing I forgot to uh, share and then I neglected to finish the text that was assigned to me. I uh, got so interested in Corinth, I forgot about the fact that he left there, and I was supposed to tell you that. Um, but to back up to something about Corinth I thought was really, really interesting. Most of you know that the Olympics that we have in our day and age are something that was actually started by the Greeks uh, many thousands of years ago. But the, the Olympics were not the only competitive games that the Greek city-states held between the cities. There was another set of games down on the Isthmus of Greece, down where Corinth was. They were the Isthmian Games, and they were held every two years instead of every four years. And they were just as uh, important uh, in the celebration of the gods as uh, the Olympics. And, of course, they... They competed in, in most of the typical types of events of the ancient Olympics. And, of course, they went not for gold, but they, when they won a race, they got to wear a wreath. Most of you are aware of this. They didn't get a gold medal. They got to wear a stick wrapped around their head. Oak leaves or laurel or something like that. And, but, but, but it was the honor of what that wreath meant, the crown. They were crowned with a wreath. Well, the games near Corinth also used a wreath for the winner. But they didn't use a branch from a tree or a bush. They used celery. But celery can't be woven into a wreath unless you let it wilt first. So the winner of the games got to wear a wilted celery crown. What an honor. What an honor of eternal value. And that may be what Paul had in mind later when he wrote to the Corinthians and he compared an incorruptible crown with a corruptible crown. You and I run the race not for a corruptible crown, but for an incorruptible crown. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Wilted celery. Train for years and years and years, just about kill yourself in a race to wear wilted celery. Amazing. The Greeks were interesting people. I want us to turn tonight to Acts chapter 18 and uh, verse 18, and we will finish actually finish Paul's second missionary journey with him in a few minutes here. Paul, having remained many days longer, that's at Corinth, took leave of the brethren of Corinth and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila, the two Jewish people, the Jewish married couple from, that had come over from Rome. And Sencrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Sencrea was a port city uh, there in Greece. They left from there, and they came to Ephesus in ver verse 19. And he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila there when he left Ephesus to continue his travels. But we have an interlude here, verse 19. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but took leave of them. So we don't know how long he was there, but he was there for a while. He went into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews, perhaps uh, a number of times, we don't know. And they were interested in hearing more and asked him to stay. But he did not. He had a pressing need uh, to continue traveling that we'll look at in just a minute. But he did leave Aquila and Priscilla there to continue sharing the gospel and discipling whoever had come to Christ. So 
this is the beginning of the ministry at Ephesus that we're going to continue to look at in chapter 19. It uh, begins with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, in verse 21, he left Ephesus saying, I will return to you again if God wills. So he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, uh, probably the church at Jerusalem. If you land at Caesarea, you're on the coast of Israel. And if you go up from there, you're going toward Jerusalem. And so he would have gone to Jerusalem to greet the church there. And then he went down to Antioch. Now, it's easy for us to read that in two verses, but we're talking about walking and sailing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. We're talking about many weeks of travel. He went back to the church at Antioch in verse 22 and spent time there according to verse 23. We don't know how much time. This is now the second time that the Apostle Paul has returned to Antioch after journeying to preach the gospel to report back to his sending church on the work that God had done through him. We uh, haven't taken time to study the theme through the book of Acts, but if you follow the work of the local church and the authority of the local church, it is very pronounced in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul did not dream this missionary thing up by himself. He was teaching the Bible in the church in Antioch, and I think at, at that point would it, was just expecting to stay there. But the Holy Spirit spoke to the church leadership and said, separate me, Barnabas, Saul, for the ministry to which I have called them. And then having uh, proceeded a little further, the church sent them out. They were sent by the local church. God sent them through the local church. And Paul continues throughout his entire ministry to honor his responsibility to his sending church. He went back to it in chapter 14 and reported. He went back to it here in chapter 18. It does not tell us that he actually reported, but I have no doubt that that is exactly what he did. He shared with them the fruit of the gospel, the work that God had done in so many places, having reached all the way now, uh, as far west as Corinth, that is the farthest west up to this point that Paul has ever taken the gospel. He fulfilled the commission that was assigned to him by the church in Antioch. So he continued to remain accountable to them. He continued to be faithful to the task that they had sent him to do. And we ought to look at all of Paul's ministry as an extension of that one sending act of the church at Antioch in chapter 13. And so that wraps up his second missionary journey. And now in verse 23, having spent some time there, he left. He left Antioch. And we call this the beginning of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Paul made three major journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts. We think he made other journeys, uh, perhaps later, after the book of Acts was finished. But he spent time in Antioch and left. I want you to notice where he went. In verse 23, he left Antioch in Syria, eastern end of the Mediterranean, and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is where he had started or, or journeyed on his first missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, he went back and visited those churches, strengthening the brethren, and then he went on to reach new areas. Now he's beginning his third missionary journey, and he goes back to the churches he established on his first journey, visited on his second journey, and he visits them again and ministers in those churches. On his second journey in those cities is where he picked up Timothy as a part of his team. On his third journey, evidently, he does not use ships to travel across Turkey. Evidently, he walked. And then from Syria, from Antioch of Syria to Ephesus, is a journey of about 800 miles. So, just for your own sake of understanding what that means, is that is like walking from New York City to Chicago. That's 800 miles, roughly. And he did not have an interstate to walk on. 
it was a, a journey always fraught with dangers, and uh, we, we read other records of some of those dangers. So he travels, he walks 800 miles, stopping at the various cities, Derby, Lystra, Illyria, Illyricum, all these different places that he has stopped at before and strengthens the disciples. Now in verse 24, um, we come into a passage, and uh, I'm not sure what all the chronology is for all of these, but I think verse 24 is happening, gives us an event that happens while Paul is away from Ephesus. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being equated only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, that's southern Greece, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. This would be at Corinth in Achaia. Now, he may have gone to other places, but we know he ended up at Corinth, uh, as recorded in 1 Corinthians 3. And also, as Paul says here, or Luke says in chapter 19 in a few minutes. Verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So the Apostle Paul has left Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus. He travels to across the Mediterranean, all the way over to Israel. He spends time at Jerusalem. He goes from Jerusalem to Syria, whether he went overland or by boat. We don't know. And then he starts a journey of 800 miles to come back to Ephesus. Do you suppose that took a little while? I think verse 24 is, meanwhile, back at Ephesus. Meanwhile, back at Ephesus, this fellow shows up one day. His name is Apollos. Now, Apollos was a Greek god. So here is a a man probably with a Greek background. His parents named him after one of the Greek gods. But at some point in time, he has... Uh, become a devout man from Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was a great, uh, was widely known for its great opportunities for education and learning. The library there uh, at one time was immense. So he was a an Alexandrian by birth. He was an eloquent man. Note, this is the description of verse twenty four and twenty five. He had come to Ephesus from Alexandria. He was mighty in the Scriptures. This man knew the Scriptures. I mean, that's quite a statement. He was mighty in the Scriptures. There aren't very many people in Scripture of which that is the kind of a description that we find. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He was speaking accurately. And he was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So basically, he had like the first three chapters or four chapters of each of the Gospels. That, that was about as much of the New Testament as he had. He, he was, I don't think he was yet understanding or preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. All he knows about is the ministry of John, and he's telling Jews, you need to get baptized because the Lord is coming. You need to get baptized because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that what John preached? You need, you need to get repent and get right with God because the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The judgment of the Lord, Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 4, the day of the Lord is here. The forerunner has come. John has come in the spirit and power of Elijah. You need to repent and get baptized and get ready to receive the kingdom of God. That's the baptism of John. That's the message of John. That's what this man had, and boy, could he preach it. And there was nothing wrong with that message, except it wasn't up to date. It wasn't complete. It was not at all unbiblical. In verse 26, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. This guy is telling the Jews, you need to repent. 
You need to repent and get ready for the coming of the Messiah. So Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching in the synagogue, most likely. And they took him aside and said, hey, can we meet you for lunch? Can you come to our house for dinner? Hey, let's get together and fellowship. Boy, you preach right on the money. Boy, you're spot on. I want to tell you the rest of the story. Without Paul Harvey, of course. And so they shared with him, at the end of verse 26, the way of God more accurately. The rest of the message about Jesus Christ. The rest of the message about why Christ came and, and what he did and his death and his burial and the resurrection and the church, no doubt, gave him uh, an understanding of the doctrine of the church. How long this took, we do not know. But they basically discipled him and continued to further prepare him for ministry. Some period of time must go by because by verse 27, he's ready to go and preach the fullness of, of what he has learned. And I, I don't use that word in the way that it's taken today as a full gospel, but, but the gospel in the complete message of the New Testament work of Christ. By verse 27, he's ready to go. He's ready to go out and minister in other places. And he has uh, this desire to go over to Achaia, which is the region where Corinth is located. And he wanted to go there and minister the gospel. The brethren encouraged him. So we have the indication right there that there are some believers in Ephesus. This may be the fruit of Aquila and Priscilla's ministry. They may be some people that moved into the area as well. We're not told, but evidently that's the core group from which the church at Ephesus continued to grow and become more thriving. So the brethren encouraged him to go to Achaia. They wrote to the disciples there, probably at Corinth, a letter of endorsement to welcome him. And then, no doubt, this message is added uh, post-events because uh, Luke is writing a summary here of how it all worked out. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I would like to have heard Apollos preach, taking the Old Testament Scriptures and proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow, that would be awesome to hear somebody uh, be able to do that powerfully. He did it powerfully. He did it with refuting the Jews. So this, I think, is going on while Paul is journeying that thousand miles back to Jerusalem and later the 800 miles from Syria to Ephesus. We're talking about months of travel time. And I think this is when Apollos is being trained by Aquila and Priscilla and being sent out and going to Corinth. So you'll notice in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1, it picks up with that reference to Apollos. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So when it says that he came through the upper country, it may refer to the fact that he took a loop through the upper part of Asia Minor. Uh, then he, it mentions Galatia and Phrygia, and, and those areas were long north to south, and maybe he went farther north. So that adds more miles to the 800 miles. Uh, 800 miles is the shortest distance. It is while Apollos is at Corinth that Paul finishes coming across Asia Minor and ends up at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was another um, seaport. It was at the uh, western end of Asia Minor. It is across the Aegean Sea from uh, the area where Corinth is. It was a major trading center in the New Testament world. There were overland trade routes that came to Ephesus, as well as uh, a great deal of shipping that came to the area of Ephesus. At, at some point in time, the harbor at Ephesus started to fill with silt, and they had to dredge it out. And later, um, it wasn't as functional. I don't know the timing 
of all of that, but Ephesus at Paul's time is still an important city at the crossroads. Anybody here that grew up in Indiana? There's a few. All right. What is Indiana called? Besides the Hoosier State. The crossroads of America. It's, it's like tractor-trailer heaven, unless you're driving beside one. I mean, when I lived out there, it just unbelievable amounts of tractor-trailer traffic because of the interstate highway systems and everything from the northeast that wants to go west has to go under that part of Lake Michigan to get west. And I mean, it is really one of the crossroads of America. These cities like Ephesus were like that in the ancient world. Incredibly important trading cities filled with temples. We, as you go down through the chapter, we're not going to get that far tonight, but you'll find opposition arises at Ephesus because of the importance of the worship of Diana. Uh, another name for Diana was Artemis. Uh, this goddess, a goddess of fertility, a goddess worshipped for a number of different reasons. And when Paul was looking at his ministry, there, there are two things that come out more at the city of Ephesus, I think. They're more obvious at Ephesus than anywhere else in his journeys. That is, the two things come together. There are two parts of Paul's strategy. And, whoa, boy, a half an inch can seem like a long ways down if, you, if you're not ready for it. Ooh. Um, as, as we look at Paul's ministry, there are times when we get indications of his strategy, but at Ephesus, two major things come together. One of the things that Paul did when he went to the cities, he almost always went first to the Jews, as he said to the Jew first and also to the, the Greek or the Gentile. Paul's ministry, he would go to the Jewish people. At Philippi, there was no synagogue, so he went down to the river where they had a prayer meeting, and he met there with them. He would go to the synagogue if they had one, and there he would reason with the Jews from the Old Testament scriptures. And being a, 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 a well-educated, basically a rabbi, um, Paul would have the reception and the respect of a Jewish crowd if he stood up to speak. He had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the foremost schools of rabbinical teaching in the Jewish world. And so he was well-received to be able to stand up and, and teach in these synagogues until, of course, they figured out what he was saying, that he was saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of their Old Testament Messiah, and, and then things started to get a little sticky. And we'll see that at Ephesus. When the people in the Jewish synagogues no longer wanted him to teach what he was teaching, and they either kicked him out or forced him out or he withdrew. Then he would go to the Gentiles in the city. Now, that does not mean he never talked to a Gentile before he talked to Jews. And it doesn't mean he never talked to Jews after he turned to the Gentiles. But that was the major emphasis of his ministry. His ministry strategy was Jews first and then the Greeks. His heart, Romans 9, 10, and 11, was for the Jew. He wanted to see the Jewish people saved. So that's one element of his strategy, and we see that in Ephesus. The second element of his strategy, which was so important, was that Paul spent most of his time going to major cities. He went to the cities throughout the various parts of the Roman Empire. And that is not saying that it's wrong to go to a small town, but as he was trying to, to influence the spread of the gospel, and encouraged the spread of the gospel throughout the world. He went to the population centers. And then once he started a church in the population centers, that church would reach the outlying area or begin to. And then he would go to another city, and they would reach their area. And we're going to see this really, really demonstrated significantly at the city of Ephesus. And I wanted to bring those two points out. Uh, before we go into any more detail at Ephesus, because uh, it is a major point for us to grasp in the movement of ministry thought through the book of Acts. Well, in Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul got to Ephesus, he found some disciples. I find this very interesting, what happened here. I've got still some questions about it that I don't have answers for. He finds some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Well, I guess not. 
I guess they haven't received him. And he said then, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Who do you think they might have heard preach? Very likely they heard Apollos preach. I'm, that's obviously an assumption, but it certainly would seem reasonable. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after, that is, in Jesus. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. This is in accordance with the same exact demonstration of God of the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. God did it this way so that everybody would know that the same thing happened to them that it happened to others. It is, it is an identification of the genuineness of the baptism. It is also a part of the work of the apostolic gift in the New Testament church. Verse 7, there were, were in all about 12 men. About 12 of these guys. Well, you know, I don't think I've ever met any church planter who wouldn't be glad to come into town and find 12 disciples already waiting to be baptized. Okay? 12 guys, ready to go. Amen. What a, what a boost, what a help. Now, some of the questions I have is, okay, where, where were Aquila and Priscilla in relation to these guys? Aquila and Priscilla have been there for months. Where are these guys? Did, did Apollos not introduce them to Aquila? Well, you know, there's a couple things missing here, which is okay. God evidently figured we didn't need to know, but it just brings up a lot of questions. How, how is it that Paul runs into these guys and they haven't heard the message from Aquila and Priscilla yet. They heard part of the message from Apollos, but evidently didn't hear it from Apollos after he understood more. And yet he meets these guys in Ephesus. Now, we have to understand Ephesus is a big town. Ephesus was a big city. And uh, you're not going to meet everybody all at once. So maybe that explains some of why they had not uh, understood more. The other thing that I find interesting is that verses 1 through 7 record Paul meeting these 12 men, and it seems as though he met these 12 men, conversed with them, baptized them, laid hands on them, and saw them speaking in tongues and prophesying before he went into the synagogue. And maybe that's, I mean, that's the way it's written. It doesn't actually say... Chronologically, this happened after that or this after that, but it's, it's kind of written that way. So, I, so usually when Paul went into a city, he did not waste any time getting to the synagogue. First Sabbath day, he was there at the synagogue. So maybe he met these other 12 guys in the first few days that he was there. So he has 12 disciples before he even gets to the synagogue. Disciples that have already come to faith before he gets there, but he helps instruct them further. In verses 8 and 9, he enters the synagogue. He reaches out to the Jews in the synagogue, and he continues speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I don't find it surprising that Paul preached for three months. I find it surprising that the Jews let him. Paul would have preached for years in the synagogue if they let him. But the fact that they put up with him saying the things that he said for three months when they eventually rejected it, I'm surprised that it lasted that long. So he is reasoning. He is persuading them. He's taking the scriptures and he's saying, okay, look at this scripture. Look at this. Look at, I, I, I can only guess that he went through the Messianic Psalms, that he went through Isaiah, that he went through Zechariah, that he went through Zephaniah, that he went through Malachi, that he went to all these Old Testament passages that point so clearly to Christ. He said, look at this. How do you explain this? And look at what Jesus did. Look at how Jesus, look at Isaiah says he's going to be born of a virgin. Now, Look at what Christ, look what happened. And he's presenting to them the truth from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah and he's reasoning about the kingdom of God. But 
in verse 9, we find the typical response of the Jewish people in almost every city where he went, when some of them were becoming hardened and disobedient. Hardened to the truth and disobedient to God. Disobedient to the gospel. And they were speaking evil of the way before the people. The way is an early reference to the gospel, the pathway of salvation, the walk of the believer in faith. They were speaking evil of, of probably of Paul and any who would follow him. And they were doing this in front of all of the people in the synagogue. So he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. So Paul began by reaching out to the Jews. He boldly and confidently explained to them the gospel. But when the resistance came, as it so often did, he was very much willing to withdraw and then spend time with the disciples. Notice at the end of verse 9, it says, He took the disciples away, and he reasoned daily with them in the school of one Tyrannus. Does the name Tyrannus sound familiar? Like the dinosaur? Tyrannosaurus Rex, the terrible king. This guy's name was terrible. Tyrannosaurus. You see the word tyrant in there? Well, I, the poor guy got stuck with the name. I don't know that that's, you know, what he was like in his disposition, but he was, whoever this was, this man with this Greco-Roman name and a, some kind of a school, perhaps it was a philosophical school, he lets Paul use the building or the, or the area, whatever it was. And so Paul met daily. Do you see that? He met daily with them in the school of Tyrannus. So the disciple, and perhaps he's reasoning also with those who are the students of the philosophers, as he did at Athens. I don't know. But he is daily teaching the scriptures. This took place in verse 10 for two years. It took place for two years, every day. It's over 700 opportunities to have a class with the Apostle Paul. That's awesome. That's awesome. Back in Jerusalem in the early church, they met every day with Peter and James and John and the others, and they listened to the teaching of the Word, and they prayed together, and we see what wonderful fruit there was in Acts chapter 2 and following from those daily times of intense instruction in the temple. And we see that same thing here. So Paul continued this ministry of outreach and of instruction, of nurturing, of discipling, of edifying the saints for these two years. And so fruitful it was. Notice the end of verse 10. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia is not the continent of Asia that you and I think of. Asia in the Roman world was the western end of what we call Turkey. It was the province, the Roman province of Asia. So it was the region of western Turkey. So Paul is in one place for two years teaching. And in those two years, those people have been well instructed in the word and they have gone out to the other cities and towns. And you can read at least seven of those names in the book of Revelation. That's where those cities are. And these people have gone out with the gospel. Paul's in one place teaching, instructing the church. And what is the church doing? It's reaching the area around it. Paul went to the cities. The cities reached the areas. The apostle Paul is training people here in the Word of God, and they are going out with the gospel, and people are being saved in town after town after town, both Jews and Greeks. In the whole region, people are coming to Christ. Other churches are being planted during this time. So here we see the strategy of Paul of going to the cities so that they can reach the area around them. It works. It's effective. Ephesians, uh, the city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus is one of the best examples in the entire New Testament. Now, while he is there, 
We also find that Paul was verifying his message by miracles. This is fully in accordance with the apostolic gift throughout history. Whenever God has raised up a generation in which he has had prophets, he has given those prophets the ability to perform miracles to, to authenticate the message. There was a man named Moses. God called him to speak to Pharaoh. Well, how's Pharaoh going to know that Moses should be listened to? He takes his rod and he's instructed by God to throw it down. And what happens? It becomes a serpent. He picks it up and he becomes a rod. Moses was enabled to do miracles, not because he was so powerful, but because God had given him a message. And God gives miracles to verify the message. And quite often in Scripture, when that is given to one generation, it follows in a second generation. And so we find the successor to Moses is Joshua. And under Joshua, there were miracles. Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still. You think you've worked a long day. In the midst of battle, the sun stands still for hours and hours and hours, and the battle drags on and on and on so that they can vanquish the foe. There were many miracles done both in Moses and Joshua. Later you have Elijah and Elisha, two generations of prophets, and God gives them the power to do miracles, not because they're such great men, but because the message is important and God wants his people to pay attention. When God gives a message, he verifies it with miracles. And the last time he did that, of course, the two generations of Jesus Christ and his apostles. Jesus Christ verified who he was by what he did. He said, if you don't believe me for the word's sakes, believe me for the works. They're the same. They say the same thing. My words say I am God. My works say I am God. Believe it. And then the apostles, when they were authorized then to preach Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ, they were authorized by God and enabled by God to do miracles, not because they were so holy and so powerful and so wonderful, they were such great men. It's because they had a message that God wanted verified. And God gave them the ability to verify that message with miracles. You can read more about that in Hebrews chapter 2. So Paul is working miracles Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And this is amazing. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. That is pretty amazing. That's where all these television people get that idea from, by the way. Um, Don't bother with those television people when they offer to send you a handkerchief. It's not going to work at least not for anything like this. I don't know what it would work for. Unless you really, really need a hanky in your drawer. And you just... <laughs> Never mind. <clears throat> so God was working miracles through Paul, but then, interestingly enough, some tried to copy Paul's miracles in verses 13 and 14, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the same evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these guys are going around trying to exercise demons in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. But it was not a Jesus that they knew. There were seven sons of one named Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who were doing this. This is pretty amazing. But then I love the demonic response. It put these guys in their place. Verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who in the world are you? Yeah, I've heard the name Jesus. I'm not looking forward to seeing that one. I know who Paul is too, but you guys? Uh Uh-uh. I find that very interesting. That would have been an embarrassing day for these exorcists, wouldn't you think? Verse 16 says, The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This demon pounced 
uh, this man possessed by a demon pounced on these seven exorcists and really showed them who was more powerful, and it was the demon. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Um, I'm so glad God gives us a record of it to see, to hear, to know the power of the gospel, the power of God in the gospel, um, as well as the warnings to us throughout Scripture for those who are false messengers. The result of this uh, false prophet, these false exorcists, and the opposition of the demonic spirit was in verse 17, that fear came upon all in Ephesus. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. This may refer specifically to the church. There may have been a broader sense, too, in which there was a spirit of awe that was spread. I mean, news like that would spread pretty quickly, don't you think? Some exorcist, seven exorcists beat up by one demon-possessed man. I mean, you, you imagine the newspaper. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. You know, friends, when we share the gospel with people, we just never know what's going to happen. We just never know. Sometimes people respond kindly. Sometimes they respond politely, thank you. And under their breath they're saying, oh, brother. Other times there's opposition. Sometimes there's debate, discussion. We, we never know how God is going to use the word and use the gospel. Our job is not to accomplish the results. Our job is to share the message. Our job is to share the message. As Paul did, as Paul then was able to verify the message with the authority of miracles... But when, when Paul did the work he was called to do, God worked out the circumstances so that fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I'd say that's good fruit. That's good fruit. Paul's ministry was affirmed in these last couple of verses by much fruit, verses 18, 19, and 20, which is where we're going to stop tonight. Paul's ministry was affirmed by a great deal of fruit. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Many confessed, confessing sin, confessing worldly ways, confessing idolatries, confessing old uh, habits that they wanted to get rid of and they were turning away from. Many of those who believed kept coming. Now, as a pastor, I can tell you, it's really a wonderful thing when those who have believed keep coming. Amen? Thank you for being here tonight. There have been a number of times in the ministry before I came here to... Uh, Grace Church at Menor. Um, I pastored a church of started as forty five people when I got there. Um, where uh, eventually there was about one hundred and twenty people, and that's all we could fit in the building. Planted a church in Lafayette, Indiana. We had about one hundred people when I left there. So I, I've never been the, the senior pastor of a big church ministry of a large work. But in those churches of 100 people or so, one time after many years at, in New York, I, I sat down and I was, I was just reflecting on, it just seemed like people come and people go, people come and people go, people come and people go. And I started making a list of all of the people, going back through prayer requests, prayer lists, attendance lists, just making a list of all the people who had 
darkened the doors of our church and come and shown some interest. And we had about 120 people in the church at that time, and I came up with a list of well over 300 people who had been sitting in the pews over a 15-year period of time. So around a third of them stuck. Same thing is true at Maple Hills. We've had far, far more people visit than stay. It's true everywhere. But these people kept coming. Those are the people that God uses in the church. That's fruit. That's steadfastness. That's faithfulness. God will bless. And he was working in their hearts. In verse 18, they were confessing. They were disclosing their practice. They were growing. They were, they were becoming aware of things in their life that were not holy, and they wanted to be more holy, and they were willing to yield to the Spirit of God and the teaching and preaching of the Word, no doubt, that was going on. And in verse 19, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. This is where... Uh, Christian camps and others get this idea of, of bringing things and having a bonfire and throwing all your worldly things in the bonfire, and not that that's a bad idea. But why wait until the youth group does it or the church says, just go ahead and get rid of this stuff? That's what they were doing. This was genuine. This, there were so many people who had gotten saved out of these superstitious, magical, idolatrous religions of the day that they had this accumulated pile of stuff, and they just wanted to get rid of it. And so they brought it, and they had this bonfire. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Isn't that amazing? All that money they had invested in magic books and spells and charms and all the little trinkets and things that are going to bring you power and all of this idolatry. They had invested all of these funds, but when they found the treasure of Christ, they were willing to count it all as nothing for the sake of Christ. I would say that's fruit of ministry. They turned from the occult. They turned to the true spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And then we read in verse 20 that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What a great statement. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I'd like to know exactly what that meant. I mean, I mean, I mean tell, me, tell me what that looked like. Tell me what that looked like in, in the churches that had been started, in the people that were coming, in the maturity that was being manifested in, in the people that were learning to teach the word and disciple one another and share their gifts in the local church and, and minister to one another. And wow, it, it's, 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 a, it's a clear statement. There's nothing unclear about it. We just would like the details. Well, someday, my friend, you'll get to meet the details. We can ask them all about it. The fruit of Paul's ministry at Ephesus. Now, the rest of the time in Ephesus is going to be a time of opposition, but that will be for the next um, time that we're back in the book of Acts in chapter 19. But you can please read ahead and see the opposition to the gospel that comes. You see Paul's response and you see uh, the end result. Paul was faithful to the ministry to which he had been called by the Lord. He was faithful to the ministry to which he had been sent by the church at Antioch. He was faithful to the gospel in the face of opposition. He was faithful to the gospel, taking it first to the Jews. He was faithful with the gospel in taking it to the Gentiles. He never flinched. He never stopped. He never failed. He just kept going. By the time we read Acts chapter 19, Paul has walked thousands of miles. He has sailed thousands of miles. He has been beaten. He has been stoned. 
He has been left for dead. We read about his testimony in other places. This was a man who was determined by God's grace to do what God had called him to do. Aren't you glad God used Luke to record it for us? And we get to see how God established the early church all across the Roman Empire. And that is the work of the church today. Wherever the church is, its work is to continue sharing the gospel, continue spreading the gospel to nearby towns and villages and cities. Something I didn't mention, but which is very true of the days of Ephesus, and it's very true today. One of the ways that the gospel spread was by all of those travelers that were coming in and out of town. Caravans coming in off of the roads, ships coming in from the sea, sailors hearing the gospel, businessmen hearing the gospel, traders and merchants hearing the gospel, money changers and bankers hearing the gospel, and them just sharing it with those who are traveling and the people in the caravan that got saved, they went back to their hometown and maybe stopped some places along the way. And the gospel just started going out by all of those contacts and conversations from those trade centers, those travel centers. And many, I think sometimes we're very mindful of this when we get on an airplane. You know, God can, God can spread the gospel around the world in 24 hours now. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I don't know, maybe it takes a little more than 24 hours for the average plane to fly around the world. I haven't been that far. Somebody else can do that. But you see what I'm saying? God uses today all of these contacts internationally to get the gospel out. And we ought to be alert to those things. Well, praise God for what he has given us the privilege of being a part of in his grace and work. We are a part of something that is huge to the glory of God. It is eternal for the everlasting glory of God, and it is all by grace, all to the glory of God. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer?